trust Jesus for salvation and serve others humbly, persistently, and wisely. Morning. Uh, do me a favor, raise your hand if you have heard the name George Washington. Anybody? All right, all right, all right. Well, he, as you, you can put your hands down, he was the first president of the United States of America. So he fought in uh, multiple wars and he survived all of them in order to become the ruler of his country. Smallpox, malaria, infections, tuberculosis, dysentery, and a giant boil the size of two fists are just some of the things that he overcame during his adventurous and remarkable life. Now during his first war, he wrote to his brother saying, but by all the powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat, and two horses shot out from underneath me. Yet I escaped unhurt." Well, George Washington also won the American Revolutionary War despite losing the Battle of Long Island, losing the Battle of Kipps Bay, losing the Battle of White Plains, losing the Battle of Fort Washington, which had to hurt, losing the Battle of Brandywine, and losing the Battle of Germantown. So, George Washington, probably not the greatest general to ever live, but he did possess a remarkable persistence. And despite all the sickness that he endured and all the failures that he oversaw on the battlefield, he eventually, he did not give up, and eventually he won. Perhaps even more impressive than this is that after George Washington won, he did not make himself king of America. He governed for two terms as president, and then he retired. He didn't lord it over America. He served America. And his persistence and his humility are why he's remembered as a great man. So, in light of all that, how do you feel about George Washington's persistence and his humility? Do you feel inspired to try and do the same? Discouraged because you've given up easily before from time to time. Maybe you don't care because you don't think your, heart, your life is very hard. You've never had a boil the size of two fists. And you don't think that you need persistence. And maybe you think that George Washington was foolish to avoid kingship. Maybe he should have. Or maybe you think, well, he, maybe he didn't really think he could become king. And it wasn't really humility, it was just cowardice. But today, Jesus is going to show us where we can place our faith for salvation to receive the persistence and humility and wisdom that we need in order to overcome all of the difficulties that we face, even our own failures. So today we're going to be reading in Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in verses 1 through 38. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these who are assembled here. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to them. It's serious. So 
please help us to take you seriously during this time. And please speak through me, eliminate anything I say that isn't yours, and help us all to leave here changed and more in love, and more knowledgeable, and more committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God wants you to strongly, joyfully, and confidently trust the good news about Jesus and the church. And that's why God wrote the Gospel of Luke. Now, the Gospel of Luke contains eyewitness testimony, which proves that we can trust our souls to Jesus. God's son lived a completely innocent life. He died without committing any crime and physically rose again from the dead in order to save you and to save me from the hell and the punishment that we deserve from Almighty and Holy God and to bless us with physical and spiritual life for all eternity. And God did this for our happiness and the glory of our eternal, transcendent, and holy God. And this idea is called the gospel, or the good news. And the gospel is what the whole Bible is about. The Bible's about how humanity rebelled against God, but how God chose to save everyone who trusts in him by selecting a chosen people, Israel, who are a blessing to all mankind, even the Gentiles, despite the fact that they're sinners and they mess up just like you and me. They're a blessing because their rejection of their great hero, Jesus, is how Jesus was sacrificed to cover the sins of all Jews who trust in him and to open the door for Paul and all the other missionaries to spread the good news about Jesus throughout the world so that we can trust in Jesus and be saved by the gospel as well. Just why there's churches in Shanghai and America and all over the world. Now the truth that the good news is for both Jews and Gentiles is present in other books of the Bible, but it receives a great emphasis in the unified story that's told by the books of Luke and Acts. These are two historical accounts by Luke that were written for a man named Theophilus. Today, we are going to examine Luke's account of Jesus' last Passover, which we read about earlier in our service today. And within the context of the book of Luke and Acts, we're going to see that Jesus is the great Jewish hero or Messiah who will be rejected in order to begin the great missionary journeys which resulted in the spread of Christianity throughout the ancient and the modern worlds. And we're going to explore this Passover account today. Our main idea today is this. Trust Jesus for salvation and serve others humbly, persistently, and wisely. Again, trust Jesus for salvation, and serve others humbly, persistently, and wisely. We're going to see this in four sections, which I've named. Section one, Passover plans, Passover Two, Passover paraphrased. Three, Passover's point. Four, Peter's Passover persistence. And if you have trouble with persistence, that's P-E-R-S-I-S-T-E-N-C-E. -E -E. Persistence, P-E-R-S-I-S-T-E-N-C-E. -E. The short names again, Passover plans, 
Passover paraphrased, Passover's point, and Peter's Passover persistence. All right, let's get going with the text. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Section 1 of the sermon, Passover plans. I'm going to talk to you about God and Satan's distinct Passover plans. Verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. All right, pause right there. Here's some explanation. As we read earlier in the service today, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also called Passover, is an ancient Jewish festival which celebrates the freedom of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And the festival calls for eating bread made without leaven, which is a reminder that Israel couldn't even wait for the bread to rise whenever they were leaving Egypt because the deliverance was so powerful and so sudden. After God killed every Egyptian firstborn to convince Pharaoh to free the Jews, Israel's firstborn children were only saved from the powerful angel of death because they placed, the parents that is, placed the blood of lambs on the doors of their houses, which was a signal for the angel of death to see the blood and then pass over without killing the firstborn sons. Passover, that's where it gets the name, is a symbol of how Israel expressed faith in God through sacrifice to be spared God's judgment. And many years later, in the book of Luke, just before his death, Jesus, as a Jew, is preparing to celebrate this important holiday. Now back to the, the text in verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Jesus, that is. For they feared the people. Now, in John's gospel, in chapter 11, verses 45 through 53, we're told that after Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, it was such a remarkable miracle that Jesus became so popular. And the Jewish chief priests and Pharisees were afraid of Jesus' popularity, and they decided to murder him in order to keep the Romans, who were ruling the area at the time, convinced that the Pharisees were still the best leaders of the Jewish people. But remember, Passover is all about salvation from death by expressing trust in God. Now, how ironic is it that all the Jewish leaders were afraid of Jesus, who saved people from death and urged them to trust in God? Now, back to the text in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. Pause. Jesus had many followers, but twelve of them were called apostles. Eleven of these men, after Jesus rose from the dead, helped to lead the church during the first generation of Christians. However, during Jesus' ministry, Satan entered Judas' heart. Now, Satan, he is a powerful fallen angel. You could also call him a powerful demon. And he was and he is trying to deceive and to murder all humans in order to cause them to rebel against God and to be destroyed in God's righteous judgment. Judgment like the judgment the Egyptians experienced the night of the first Passover when their firstborn sons were killed. Now, God promised the great, 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 great grandmother of all humanity, Eve, that Jesus would come and defeat Satan. So Passover 
is a symbol of how Jesus enables God the Father to remain just and punish sin and yet spare humanity from destruction and in so doing, stop Satan's plans. So, back to the text in verse 4. He went away, Judas that is. Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet with you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. So they went and they found it just as he has told them. And they prepared the Passover. Pause. So far, we have seen two plans, which is why this section of the sermon is called Passover Plans. Plan number one, Satan's got a plan. Satan's planning to kill Jesus through Judas' betrayal. That's the plan. Plan number two, this is Jesus' plan. Jesus plans to eat dinner. One plan, evil, very dangerous. The other, kind of mundane, kind of routine sounding. Or is it? Maka was giving me feedback on the sermon and he wrote, or is it? So I included that and I was so, I have to tell you that it was Maka's line, I wanna take it from him. Jesus was fully God and fully human. And it seems possible that because he was you know, fully human, that maybe he didn't know every detail of Satan's plan to kill him. But the Bible is clear that Jesus did know before entering Jerusalem that he was going to be killed. So in the, in the face of Satan's murder plan, Jesus has created a fighting, black, a fighting back plan. No. A runaway plan. No. A Passover plan. Yes. Jesus' plan in the face of suffering is to remember God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, an event that happened long, 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 long ago. Why is he doing this? Well, this is important for you for three reasons. Reason number one, all scripture is important. Passover and Exodus may be the last thing on your mind when you get sick, if you lose your job, if you lose a loved one, or if you experience any other kind of suffering. But it was on Jesus' mind right before he went through what had to be the greatest torture of his life. So you don't, submit, don't dismiss the Old Testament out of hand as if it's irrelevant, even though many people do that. Instead, you need to read the Old Testament. Many people read it every year, and that's a really, really good idea. So that's reason number one. All scripture is important. Number two, all of the Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is one unified story, and its climax is Jesus' resurrection. And everything before Jesus' death and resurrection prepares us for Jesus' work. And everything that comes after that is a response to that pivotal event. Even Passover, which is back here, which highlighted for Israel that not only were Adam and Eve spared shame through the animal skins that God provided 
And not only was Isaac saved from Abraham through God's provision of a sacrificial lamb, and not only was the entire nation of Israel spared God's judgment on the land of Egypt through God's command to trust him by sacrificing lambs, so you also, like those other three, you need a sacrifice to cover your sin so that you will be spared, not from the angel of death, but from the living God who judges not only Egypt, but Shanghai and China and the entire world, past and present and future. You need to trust in Jesus to be your sacrifice so that the great judgment of God passes you by. So reason number one that this is important, Jesus' Passover plan, is that all scripture is important. Number two, all of the Bible is about Jesus. And number three, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Jesus knew that danger lay in Jerusalem, but he didn't run from that physical danger because he was concerned with his spiritual mission. He could have spent his time in Jerusalem trying to defend himself from danger. He could have been hiring bodyguards or, I don't know, training with the sword, but he didn't. He spent his time, his last valuable moments, right before the cross, reminding the apostles of God's deliverance from sin through faith expressed in sacrifice. And so you, today, here in Shanghai, do not trust in the strength of your arm to protect you from fists. Do not trust in your reputation to protect you at work. Do not trust in money to keep your family safe instead. Seek first to share the kingdom of God with those closest to you, and then as many people as possible. Because in the face of suffering, Jesus prioritized the spiritual welfare of his apostles, not his own physical safety. And now so far we've seen that Jesus has a plan, and his plan may seem strange to us, but that's why we have to trust in Jesus' plan. Our main point today is to trust Jesus for salvation and to serve others humbly, persistently, and wisely. And trusting in Jesus' plan is where I got the trust part of that main idea. Now, as Satan prepares to kill Jesus, Jesus is getting ready to care for his disciples with the ceremony of Passover. Let's get back to the story. Let's get back to the text for part two of the sermon, which is Passover paraphrased. Jesus is going to preach Passover. Let's start back in verse 14, which says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Quick pause. Jesus and his 12 closest friends are now back in the guest room attending the Passover meal. Let's get back to the text. Verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Okay. This is the last time that Jesus is going to experience the metaphor of Passover with his friends before he dies. And after Jesus' death, he's not going to have Passover again until the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God can be very difficult to understand because God is the king of everything all the time. And God is also reconquering 
a universe that is partially rebelling and partially submitting. In other words, God's kingdom is coming in the future, it's already here, and it never left. In today's text, Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God as a future event. Perhaps he's speaking of when all the world has submitted to Jesus after Jesus returns. Now, the point that Jesus is making is this. This is his last chance to prepare his followers for his suffering. The apostles were a lot like you, and they were a lot like me. They were initially confused by Jesus being killed because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God's heroic leader. He had come to save Israel. But Jesus was different than they expected. He expressed his heroism not by killing the Romans, who oppressed Israel, but by dying at the hands of the Romans in a torturous death of crucifixion. And this Passover meal is Jesus' last chance to correct the apostles' misunderstanding and to prepare them for his death. Now, what does this mean for you? Well, it means two things. Number one, your pain in life is going to be magnified the more you ignore Scripture. If you, like the apostles, and sometimes like me, believe that Jesus' will for you as an agent of his kingdom is going to be a quick and overwhelming victory over everybody who annoys you, then you need to stop believing that. Because on top of your suffering, you're also going to be disappointed when Jesus doesn't ride to the rescue, when you stub your toe, or when he doesn't perhaps even save your elderly parents by giving them faith in Jesus. That's a horrible, horrible night. It's a terrifying thing to face. Simply put, your plans are not necessarily Jesus' plans. And so you need to pay close attention to what he's saying. Number two, the second reason this is important is that Jesus deeply cared for the salvation of his apostles. And you too should be deeply caring about the salvation and growth of everyone that you know. All right, back to the text. Verse 17, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, let's explain. Jesus, taking advantage of his last Passover, compares his body and his blood and the, to the bread and to the wine of the Passover meal. He's saying, My body will be broken like bread. My blood will pour out like wine as I perform the sacrifice and create the covenant which will allow the enemies of God to become his friends. Jesus is saying that Jesus' suffering is the meaning of Passover and that after the Passover is fulfilled in his death, he's not going to explain the gospel using the Passover meal anymore. Now back to verse 21. Jesus says, in verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. 
For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So, now that Jesus has explained that his suffering is the meaning of Passover, he clarifies that this suffering is God's plan. Jesus knew that the apostles might think that since God planned for Jesus to be killed, that perhaps the traitor isn't responsible for betraying Jesus. That seems logical, right? God planned for Jesus to die, so maybe the traitor isn't responsible. God's responsible. So Jesus tells the apostles that even though God planned for Jesus to be betrayed, the betrayer is still going to be judged by God for their evil. Now, this is a profoundly difficult thing for you and I to understand. So we're going to get into it. You and I need to understand that Jesus' death is the great Passover in which God provided for your sins and mine to be covered by Jesus' blood. This Passover was planned by God. God's plan included an evil betrayal which resulted in Jesus' death. But even though God plans evil, God's intentions are always, always, always good. And he punishes those whose intentions are evil, even if betrayers are carrying out his good-intentioned plan. We can respond to God's Passover plan in five ways. Number one, repent from your sin. Number two, trust in Christ for forgiveness and friendship from God. Three, expect God's plans for our lives to include evil and perhaps even betrayal. If even Jesus, the great, I mean, we're Christians, he's the Christ. If even the Christ experienced murder through evil, then why would it be surprising for little Christians like you and me to experience mistreatment too? Don't be surprised by suffering in your life. Four, refuse with me, refuse to blame God for evil because God only plans evil because he has good intentions. In this passage, the all-powerful God permits Satan to indwell Judas in order to prepare the way for Jesus' sacrificial death, which accomplished the great, the great good. So God is responsible for your suffering, but you can't blame him for your suffering. Instead, you and I should rejoice that your suffering and my suffering is not meaningless, that God is using it for good all the time. We need to praise God and that our suffering is not meaningless. All right, now I have, I have two kind of subpoints, two kind of qualifiers that I want to throw on top of this. Please know that learning to praise God in suffering is hard. It's really hard. And the harder the suffering, the harder it is. And like all things in your life that are difficult, this is going to take you time to learn. And, it's only, and you're only going to get better at this slowly. So, second qualifier, work hard at praising the Lord in suffering. But do not be discouraged when your heart still feels angry at God. Again and again and again, say no to your anger and to your despair and return to trusting 
and rejoicing in the Lord. And get help from other Christians by telling them that what you're going through and seek their encouragement. This is true of every application that you'll hear in this sermon. That's the way you do it. Start slowly, build, 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 build. And while you're doing that, get help from other people and tell them what you're going through. Now, the fifth and the last reason that we can, the fifth and last way that we can respond to God's Passover plan is by warning ourselves and others not to sin because God always punishes those whose intentions are evil. Because, again, none of God's intentions are evil, even though he causes evil things to happen for good reasons. And that's why God is completely good. Now, so far, we've gone through two of the four points of the sermon. We've done, number one, Luke has explained God's Passover plans. And two, Jesus has preached Passover to the apostles. So, we know that God has a plan. And that his plan includes salvation for you and for me. And that's why our main idea today is to trust Jesus for salvation and to serve others humbly, persistently, and wisely. We trust Jesus because God has a plan to pass over our sins through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Now, Jesus is going to apply Passover to the apostles and to us. So it's, we're now ready for point three, Passover's point. Let's look back at the text. In verse 23, Jesus applies Passover. And they began to question one another, which of them it was, it could be, who was going to do this. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. Odd. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is not the one who reclines, is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Explanation. The apostles wanted to be great. Now that may sound bad to you. Bad to want to be great. But Jesus doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. Instead, he, he tells them how to be great. He shows them. The apostles think that exercising lordship and giving commands like Gentile kings is the way that you become great. In a restaurant, the apostles would much rather be the customers. They don't want to be the waiter. They want to give orders. They don't want to take them. But Jesus encourages the apostles to watch how Jesus cared for them. Imitate Jesus by serving others. Stop thinking of powerful people as great and start thinking of kind servants as great. And we need to do those four things too. Why? Well, Jesus promised to the apostles that if like Jesus, 
they do the hard work of serving others instead of trying to control them, that he's going to reward them in his kingdom with authority and with close fellowship with Jesus for eternity. So like the apostles, I urge you, do not give up your desire to be great by all means. Your desire to be great is probably too small. Work on that. But you got to do it Jesus' way. And the way to be great Jesus' way is to get small, to serve others, and to be humble. And that's very difficult. And that's why it's great. So here are seven applications of Passover. Number one, Jesus is king because he died for us. Two, we can be great if we lay down our lives for God and others. Three, greatness is good and we should pursue it. Four, but we cannot pursue greatness like the world. Five, if you feel like you can't conquer, you can't be the strongest, you can't be the prettiest, you can't be the richest, you can't be the harshest or the smartest or the best at business, that's okay. You don't have to be talented in order to be great in the Christian world. You just have to be humble. Six, if you correctly believe that being humble is hard, that's good. It is hard, but be encouraged because Jesus has risen from the dead. And as God declared him to be righteous, so God also declares you who trust in Jesus to be humble, which is part of being righteous. If you trust Christ, God declares you to be humble. He considers you humble so that you can be humble. Because, number seven, if by faith you seek to be humble, God will fill you. He will fill you with strength to endure embarrassment or persecution or physical suffering, the blood and the sweat and the tears that lie on the path of putting others first. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it because we've got to be great because we want God to reward us. Now, so far in, the book, in, in Luke, God's done three things. We've seen God's Passover plans. We've seen that Jesus has preached Passover to the apostles. He's told them that he is the meeting. And number three, Jesus has applied Passover. He's told us, this is the application. Go be humble. Humility, our latest point of emphasis, is a key application of Passover. And this is why our main point today is to trust Jesus for salvation and serve others humbly, 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 persistently, and wisely. Humility. Now, let's finish up. Let's go to our fourth and final point. Peter post Passover. Jesus is going to prophesy Peter's Passover actions. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers explanation. Jesus knows the future, at least this part of it. And he knows that Satan will tempt G Peter to betray Jesus tonight. That's what Satan sifting Peter like wheat means. And Jesus tells Peter that Peter is going to turn again. Now you can only turn again if you have already turned. So Jesus knows that Peter definitely will fail against the temptation of Jesus, of Satan, in one sense. 
But Jesus tells Peter to strengthen his brothers. Jesus is saying that even though Peter is going to be undependable tonight, that ultimately he will be someone that the church relies upon in the future. And in that sense, he will not ultimately fail. Because in the end, Peter is going to rise out of this night of failure and he's going to carry on trusting in God. Now, this does not mean that Peter's sin is not serious, and it doesn't mean that your sin is not serious, and it doesn't mean that my sin is not serious. But it does mean that God is even more serious than Peter's sin, and he's even more serious than my sin, and he's even more serious than your sin. And God has a plan to save you and me and Peter from Satan, even after it seems like the devil is one. This is important for us for seven reasons. You sin too. Even Christians sin, even Christians sin badly, like Peter. But Christian living is defined by Christian growth over time. And Peter and Christians do change and they do grow. And we can reveal our faith through good works. God causes our hearts not to fail. Jesus asks God to give Peter faith. So if, if free will for you and for anyone means, if free will means that God does not cause us to believe or to feel or to want, well, then we don't have free will. God controls everything according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. So God also controls the hearts of believers and unbelievers. Now, it may sound scary, but thank God that we don't have free will because God loves us. And he causes Christians to ultimately succeed by moving their wills into the correct place. But, despite the fact that Peter and you and I have no free will, Peter is treated by Jesus as responsible for his choices. He tells Peter to choose, after he has failed, to repent. So, in moments of weakness, you should first pray to God to give you faith. But after you have prayed, you need to work hard to honor God with your choices, even if you fail. You're still responsible for them, despite the fact we have no free will. Because like Peter, you have a responsibility to love God by strengthening your brothers, your sisters, your neighbors, your friends, and your enemies. So, back to the text in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Peter doesn't believe that Jesus knows this part of the future perfectly. Peter declares that even if Satan is going to threaten him with prison or death, he's never going to abandon Jesus. But Jesus confirms that not only is Peter going to abandon him, he's going to do it quickly. He's going to do it in the early in the morning before the rooster has a chance to go cock-a-doodle-doo. Jesus is not saying that Peter has no choice. Peter is, Jesus is just saying, I know which choice you are going to make. The Bible teaches that God plans and he controls everything that has ever happened. 
So people do make choices, but God plans what choices people will make. And God holds everybody responsible for making choices with good intentions. And God is just. He rewards people with good intentions and he punishes people with bad intentions. So we've got to respond to this truth. And we've got to respond by praying that God would give us hearts that want to make good choices, admitting that we are sinners and that sometimes we abandon Jesus. We've got to trust Jesus to save us from our sins. And we've got to use the lessons that we have learned from our failure to encourage and to strengthen our family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and acquaintances here in Shanghai or wherever God sends you. Back to the text, verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now the last message that Jesus has for the apostles and for you and for me today is a reminder that when he sent the apostles out earlier in his ministry, during that trip, they didn't pack seemingly needed supplies. And yet, God took care of them. But now, this is different. As Jesus prepares to suffer and then to rise again and depart and go to prepare the kingdom of God, Jesus tells the apostles to bring supplies, bring money, backpacks, swords. His explanation may even sound confusing to you and to me and to the apostles, but he says they need swords in order to fulfill prophecy. Which prophecy? These are the words of Isaiah 53, which says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So this is an ancient prophecy, and it refers to Jesus' death after being falsely accused of this transgression. So Jesus has to be accused of transgression in order to fulfill prophecy. Why does Jesus have to fulfill prophecy, though? Well, the text doesn't say outright, but here are three reasons that occurred to me while I was preparing. One, when God's predictions come true, it makes God look good. So fulfilled prophecy glorifies God. Two, fulfilled prophecy confirms to people that they can trust God. And three, God's predictions inevitably come true because he can't lie. And he knows everything and everything is in his power. So in that sense, it has to happen in the same way that four has to equal two plus two. But how does having swords mean that Jesus will be numbered with transgressors? Exactly how does this fulfill the prophecy? I don't know. But one possibility, here's one possibility. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, Peter used one of the swords that were present in the garden to cut off the ear of one of Jesus' attackers. 
Now, it's possible, although the text does not say this, but it's possible that the Pharisees tried to use this incident when accusing Jesus during his trial before Pilate. Maybe. Additionally, there is a unity between Jesus and his followers because all of Christians are inside Christ. So Jesus could be numbered among the transgressors because he knows that his followers will be unfairly persecuted after he departs and he goes back to heaven. Perhaps part of the unfair persecution that has been that Christians defend themselves using swords. These difficult circumstances are potentially why Jesus also encouraged the disciples to bring knapsacks and money. Now, as you hear that washing over you, you may think, well, does this mean that since Jesus is gone that the apostles are like now on their own? No. Remember that Jesus asked the disciples whether they lacked anything when they went out with preparations. They lacked nothing, even when they didn't pack supplies. And that means that the true source of their protection is not the backpack or the money, it's God. God is the source of all provision, whether it's Jesus performing a miracle or God the Father ordaining that the supplies and the granola in our backpack will feed us until we reach the next city. The true source of your happiness and my happiness and safety is always the same. It's always God. So how can we apply this truth? Use alarms, use your calendar, and use your to-do list or a friend to help remind you to do the following things. One, trust in God. Number two, pack supplies. Trusting God to help you to choose the right supplies. Three, make plans using God to guide your steps. Four, encourage yourself and others that God's prophecies will always, always, always come to pass. Five, regularly remind yourself and others of times that God has taken care of you. Six, get busy with the mission that Jesus has left you and me here on earth to do. The backpack is for carrying your Bible. The money is for taking unbelievers to Starbucks to discuss the Bible. The sword is to defend your life from people who want to kill you for sharing the Bible. This is sometimes literal, although nowadays God probably recommends an electric taser or pepper spray instead of a sword. We have other weapons at our disposal. Tasers, I looked it up, I think are illegal in China, and I wasn't able to identify a Chinese brand of pepper spray. But it is probably also legitimate to say that self-defense through fists, swords, shrewd negotiation for you business-minded Shanghai people, threats and warnings is not only legitimate in the pursuit of spreading the gospel, but it's also sometimes necessary so that Christians are not hindered from preaching when we're attacked. Last application. Trust God. It was also the first application. I said it before, fine. It's the most important application. We've seen in point four of our sermon that Peter had to persist after he failed and that all the apostles had to be wise after Jesus returned to heaven. They couldn't just walk around naively with no backpack, swords, pepper spray, or tasers. And that's why our main point today in a frequently dangerous world 
is to trust Jesus for salvation and to serve others humbly, persistently, and wisely. We began this morning by talking about George Washington. George Washington, looking at Fort Washington, was like, oh my gosh, I have failed. Peter also failed deeply. Washington failed often. I relate to both. But God intends for Passover to save us from our sins. If we trust in him, then it's proof that he has given us faith. And we are called today to humbly trust Jesus for salvation and to serve others persistently and wisely. So no matter if you lose a hundred battles this week, no matter if you betray Jesus three times before the cock crows, no matter if you get a boil on the size of your back that's the size of two fists, God is going, if we prayerfully anticipate and rely upon him, he will turn us again and he will strengthen one and each of us through each other, through the power of Christ who offers us wine, which is his blood, and offers us bread, which is his body, and in whose name I'd like you to pray with me. Father, we fail very often. We're arrogant sometimes. We're foolish at times. And so we need you to pass over our sins. We need you to see your son's blood on the doorpost of our hearts. And we need you to turn us again, like you turned Peter again, back, so that we can strengthen one another, because we are WSBC, and we are members of one another. We need to do this because it's the calling you've given us. Thank you for loving us. Please bless us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.